Podcast 011, Making the Big Bucks with Permaculture, Part 3 of 3. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. Does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah. Anybody have more questions? No? Or what? Well, you were talking about the honor store, and... I'm just curious, are there regulations about that? I mean, is that like a gray zone if somebody comes and gets food and technically you're selling it and then they get salmonella or whatever, you know? Of course there are regulations against that. So um, I think that there are some things that you could sell for which there would not be a regulation. And, um, in fact, apparently recently, I think it was someplace in Maine, perhaps, or Vermont, or some town out on the East Coast, like just three days ago, passed a city ordinance or something, which said this overrides all county, state, and federal laws. Small farms are able to sell directly to consumers without the government being involved at all. And then they defined what they believed was a small farm. And, and it was like, wow, that is so awesome. Now, of course, you know, we're going to pay the federal government to come down and crush those people. And we're going to pay state government to crush them. And we're going to, you know, but, but hey, they're trying. They're, they're making a stand, which is awesome. You can't curse your soul. <laughs> they would get spread too thin. They'd have to start taxing us even more just to come out here and crush us more. <clears throat> the rebellion begins. Uh, but is there, uh, my example, I have chickens, and I would rather give my, my eggs away than sell them because I, I feel more honorable, whatever. But You came to the wrong presentation, didn't no, I you? Know, I know. But I will say it like on a bigger scale. But in terms of my little chickens, you know, and a friend of mine was selling them for like two fifty a dozen, and I was like, that hurts me spiritually to sell my eggs for two fifty a dozen. I feel like I'd rather give them away. But you know, I'm just I'm just wondering what. So I went to this um, cheese artisan workshop that was in Washington State, and it was put on by. Washington State University and the Washington State Department of Agriculture, and they had the the gal there who was in charge of coming out to your farm and telling you cease and desist. So she was like some sort of dairy inspector person. Um, And uh, um, she basically made this presentation like, of course you want to install... $50,000, $50,000, I mean, this is what we figured out during this presentation, this workshop, is that in order to qualify for USDA grade A, if you have one cow and you want to sell the milk, if you want to qualify, it's $50,000 worth of equipment that you must have in order to possibly pass the inspection for one cow. And then her position was, is like, well, if you do this, and then you sell milk to your next-door neighbor, your good friend, your lifelong friend, and then they die from it, well, then their family's mad at the government, not at you. 
do you really want your family or your friends or whatever to be mad at you because you killed them or made them sick or, or whatever? And that was their point. And, and then pretty much everybody in the audience was kind of like, oh, give me a break. So, I mean, there are some valid concerns. There are some valid pathogens that can come up in food and be an issue. But as we all know, that stuff's going right on through the, the current commercial system. You know, and, and it's like, and, and 90, what, probably like 96% of all food is not inspected, and yet the conditions are like really icky. And, and it's kind of like, you know, and, and, but at the same time, I've been to farms where people are kind of saying things like, our stuff is better, you know, they shouldn't regulate us, they shouldn't be giving us all this hassle and stuff like that. And frankly, I've got to tell you, those farms were disgusting, and I wouldn't eat any food that came off of those farms. Some people just don't get it. They just don't understand what the word pathogen means. And so, um, you know, both sides have a point. I mean, I've, I've been to places that were awesome, where it's like I would far prefer to eat any food off of this one farm than anything that the USDA approves of. You know, so it's a mixed bag. I, I, I think, and in fact, the, the, the thing that, that that one city was doing, I think, is like, you know, hey, uh, let, the, let the buyer beware, you know. You, and, and, and a big part of what's, you know, the local vor stuff, um, uh, people are saying, you know, you should eat local, but the reason that what, I want to say that the reason why is that everybody goes with is wrong. And so what's the reason why you should eat local? Shipping. Shipping. Bullshit. Bullshit. So you're going to say, so people, what people do is they say the amount of fuel it takes for that to come 1,500 miles is greater than if it comes 40 miles. Lies. That stuff that came 1,500 miles, that was on trains and semi-trucks. And those have, been, have had their fuel systems optimized so much that that food ends up being freaky cheap at Safeway. You can get those bananas for 33 cents a pound. Because all the shipping stuff has been so cheap, they use so little fuel per pound of food. In the meantime, so like those semi trucks get like six to eight miles per gallon. Now you get a pickup truck coming from the Bitterroot to the farmers market here, and that pickup truck is getting six to eight miles per gallon. It's hauling far less food to get these 40 miles, it's hauling, what, maybe a couple hundred pounds of food as opposed to several tons of food. It's, it's, so it's hauling this little bit of food. And then when it makes the trip back, it's not like hauling goods for the good people of the Bitterroot back. I mean, maybe they went to the good food store and picked up a sack of groceries or something. But, I mean, it's not like the, the truck is full all the way to the top even. It's not like it's hauling a semi-truck load of food back. It's bringing it one way. It's hauling the leftovers back. And it generally isn't hauling anything more. When you run all the mass, it turns out that the food that's coming from 1,500 miles away is actually using less fuel per pound of food than the stuff at the local farmer's market. Now, that said, I think buying local is far superior, but for different reasons. I think most people would say it's better for the economy, for the local economy. 
that gets into a debatable space too. But you know, the, but the, the, the real reason is you should know your farmer. The food, the food that you go and you get, you should know that, that how good it is. Another thing is, is that I, I really believe that buying food that's organic or better than organic or at least, you know, like you've come to the conclusion that it's at least as good as organic even if they don't have the official organic label, that is far more important. And I could probably spend two hours talking just about why I believe that is. But, but let's just say that I believe you should get it organic or better first. Don't even think about anything else. Then buy local. And the reason why you're buying local is because you know that farmer and you have visited that farm. And it meets, you know what, I want to say it doesn't meet your specifications for quality. It meets my specifications for quality. <laughs> because frankly, most people don't know. They don't know what to look for. They don't know... What, what this, what, you know, it's like they get there and it's like, I don't know, it looks like a, a farm, I guess. I don't know, for stuff. I mean, they don't know what questions to ask. They don't know what are, what are some telltale signs of shenanigans. You know, so, so um, and, and I mean, that in itself would take weeks to teach some people. So then, you know, but that's an important part. You're making your farmer accountable as opposed to your farmer being this invisible entity that can get away with anything because it goes through so many layers of misdirection that they can do anything that they want. No one cares. I mean, think about it. If you're going to get chicken or pigs, this is an easy one. If you go out to the farm and they're out there in the sunshine, that's a big positive. If you go out there and there's 5,000 chickens confined to a barn and they're packed and they're so tight they can barely move, that's a big negative. If you go out there and all the chickens are in cages so they can hardly move, or the hogs stink so much, or if there's a smell of any kind, that's a bad sign. These are some of the things that you say when you're buying meat from a farm, these are some of the things that you could be looking for. Hell, there's places that are labeled as organic and they're damn nasty. All right, so... Did I answer your question, or am I just rambling? Am I just... No, no, it's good rambling. Okay. Well, are we done talking about the, uh, the money? Does anybody have any more questions about how to make the big bucks with permaculture? Okay, this is the part where you do your little polite applause. Yay. Oh, a standing ovation of one. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, now we can talk about whatever the hell you want to talk about. So did you have more stuff that you wanted to talk about? Um, I'm sure, but... I'll let other people ask questions. <laughs> you're, you're afraid your questions are dominating? No, no. I'm just, I Who else has a different question? Okay. So are you making a big bucks with permaculture? I am not. But I can tell you that I gave up uh, very big money. I used to make about $400,000 a year uh, doing software engineering. Have you ever used uh, Google Earth or, like, you know, the Google Maps? So I'm one of the primary architects for the ground systems of the spacecraft that takes those lovely pictures for the Google Earth. You know when you say satellite view? Bottom will say copyright, digital globe. So that's where I worked for a while. That was one, that's like one of the, most of the projects geeks work on, you'd never see it. It's so far embedded somewhere, someplace. You just, you just never see it. And, and then I've, uh, the, mo- the other projects I'm, that are really famous are like, 15 years ago, you guys have probably never heard of it. 
So you know what a web browser is, right? So do you know what people use before they use web browsers? CompuServe. CompuServe. Yes. So CompuServe. What else? AOL, all that other stuff. Uh, BBSs? Oh, yeah. And what terminal software did you use to access the BBS? A bunch of it was. It was DOS back then. It was DOS. So there was Procom. There was Telex. There was um, a, a bunch of them. But anyway, I wrote one of those. And mine became number one just before the Internet got all hot. And and then so I wrote a web browser and I made I had this and this was all in Missoula I was here in Missoula then and I and I created a web browser and then um, uh, Bill Gates said I'm going to make a web browser I'm going to give it away for free with every copy of any every every operating system I give away or I sell so suddenly I had no way of selling a browser so I shelved it but when it came to DOS terminal packages for accessing BBSs mine was downloaded from CompuServe more than any other. It was like 50 different ones. Those were the days. That was one glory day. Um, but anyway, uh, the thing is, is, I do believe that I can, through permaculture, make more money than I made back then. And, um, and I'm on this path. I'm looking for land in the Missoula area. Um, I'm, going to, I'm looking to lease 80 acres, 80 to 200 acres, somewhere around there. Um, and and I'm, I'm willing to pay, you know, the going rate for that kind of land. It's a long-term lease. And then I'll start my evil empire of making big gobs of money. Are you stretching again? Okay. <laughs> I'm getting used to it now. What's the um, It should be, if it was flat land, it would go for about 40 bucks an acre per year. Um, but on sloped land, that would probably be more along the lines of $15 an acre. And there are some areas where they're leasing that land uh, to people that are just grazing animals on it, and they're leasing it for $2 an acre per year. So, pretty cheap. But um, I'm also looking for a very long-term lease of 15 years or more. But usually, by mentioning it at places like this, friend of a friend of a friend and we'll and I'll get something lined up and I've got a few leads right now that I'm working on yes sir are you planning to use mostly interns and volunteers or you do plan to hire people I uh, plan to do a little of uh, all of them yeah there's going to be a full spectrum I mean I, I like the idea of eventually uh, entering into a business arrangement with a physician who would uh, live on the land, and so when people would come to not cure cancer, um, that he could work with them to adjust their med medications to the point that they don't need them anymore. Um, I, uh, I, I think that there would need to be a, a cook, a damn good cook, and cooks typically like being paid. An odd thing. Yeah, and if they're good, they can pay a lot. So, um, no, I, it's, this is, it's a large-scale operation. I, I, I think that um, within 10 years, I could probably be earning a couple of million dollars a year. But how many employees? It depends. It depends on a lot of different things. And it depends on what you call an employee. 
or someone you pay? So, um, they're seasonal. I mean, it's going to depend on so many things. I mean, it, it's going to depend on how the whole thing evolves. Mm -hmm. And and I mean, like, uh, sometimes you get a land opportunity and it's like, this is going to take a lot more time to evolve. And other times you get a land opportunity and it's like, look, it comes with this 20-bedroom structure and it comes with all the ingredients and I think that we can get going really fast here. So I've answered your question with it depends, which is crazy vague, and, and I can't really do better than that. Yeah. I mean, basically, that's a big part of almost getting any land. When I, when I got my 80 acres that I had before on Mount Spokane, I mean, I started doing a little bit of everything. And the land turned out to have some things that didn't want to grow. And, and as time passed, I found out why, and I started correcting that. In the meantime, there were other things that did awesome. I, I did awesome with hogs. I was just doing great. And, and it turned out that that area was very conservative, which is something I didn't look into when I went into the area. And um, the people there um, uh, loved bacon. Oh, man, they loved bacon. However, it turns out that for a lot of them, that if they went down to the local grocery store, got bacon, fried it up, and put it in their mouth, that they would die. I mean, like literally die, or at least be hospitalized for weeks. And, and yet it's like this, this horrible dilemma. They loved bacon, and yet it would kill them. But if they ate my bacon, it didn't kill them. And um, what I tried to tell them why that was, how, you know, I didn't use these hormones, I didn't, you know, what I fed them, and, not, and it's like, hey, I don't want to listen to your hippie voodoo talk. Just sell me the damn hog. Yeah, you know, because you know this is this is the way they live their life. You know, there's some something some kind of hippie voodoo thing going on, and now they can eat bacon again. They don't want to look behind the curtain. They don't want to hear about what's going on behind the curtain. They just want their bacon. So I was doing awesome at selling hogs, and there were other markets I was working on developing. And then I left the farm. So, any other questions? About anything? Yes, ma'am. I'm, I'm curious about the food forest and what, what, what trees would make up a food forest? Well, of course, you know, what we're trying to not do is have an orchard. Right. And the benefit of an orchard is fruit trees. So our food forest typically contains a fair number of fruit trees. Um, on top of that, we're going to have uh, support trees. And it turns out that one of the best supports you can get is to have uh, a tree with a deep taproot, which is going to be your nut tree. And, oh, wow, they have a taproot and they produce nuts. How awesome is that? Then we want to have our trees which are nitrogen-fixing. We'll have a bunch of those. And then we're going to have bushes and shrubs underneath and some canes. And then we're going to have a whole bunch of places where there's openings and we're going to have more low-growing herbaceous crops, maybe more of your annuals and that kind of a thing. Um, so there's, uh, so it's, even though it's called a food forest, there will be openings in the forest. Part of what we want to do with permaculture is to have edge. So in which case, if we had a clearing in our forest, we would have edge all along the clearing where there would be a lot of more herbaceous things that could grow. And edge comes a lot of flavors. So in the permaculture presentation that I give, we go a lot into edge and we go a lot into all these different aspects. 
But the thing is, is that for like apple trees, that might be one tree out of 20 is an apple tree. And that might be a fairly apple-intensive food forest. But now do you see why we want to do that instead of have a monocrop of apples, an apple orchard? But we had a we had a black walnut tree oh. in our backyard, and it was probably five stories tall. And um, and I think the taproot takes like five years to grow, doesn't it? It's, I mean, it's a very long time to get it. A lot of it depends upon how the tree was planted. But the thing about a black walnut is that that's like the, the number one example of um, allelopathy. And, and uh, a, a black walnut exudes juglums from its roots, which is toxic to, I believe, more than half of the species out there, plant species out there. So then, you know, I think tomato is one. So if you have, like, if you're like, growing a, a black walnut tree over there and then over here you've got like your raised bed garden you got tomato in it well eventually those roots from the black walnut will find their way into this bed and your tomato will die because it's exuding juglins in the meantime other species will be fine they don't mind the juglins they cope so black so you said black walnut and I thought we were gonna go down this path of and then things around it would die and it's like, Oh well, I could explain that, but you never said that. So then I had no, to like it was, it was fascinating. We couldn't the walnuts were the size of softballs and we all had to wear literally wear hard hats in the backyard because they would come down five stories and I mean it was crazy. We didn't we weren't trying to grow anything that was there. But uh but so I was just wondering, is that a good tree? I mean, it's a very, it's a long time to establish. It's, it's, oh, no, it's, it's a great tree. Um, you know, just, you just got to keep in mind it's allelopathic stuff, and it's, like, not something you want to have growing everywhere. You might have, like, an area where it's, like, okay, you've got all of your um, black walnuts are kind of off in this one corner with the things that can tolerate growing in black walnutville. Um, and and only only over there, and um, you know, the rest of your property is black walnut free. Is there are there other trees that are like that? There's lots and lots of plants of all kinds that are like that. Um, in fact, uh, we've got one uh, that around here. Uh, we've got several around here that fall into this. Uh, when I say the word conifer, do you know what that means? All conifers are allelopathic. And, um, and so then if you notice, like, if, you, uh, if there's an established conifer, that underneath it hardly anything grows. But one of the things that will grow is a huckleberry. It will tolerate. The, there's certain things that have learned to tolerate the allelopathy. But now, if you look under cedars, hardly anything will grow under a cedar. Because cedars got more of that allelopathic thing going on than the other conifers. Does it have something to do with like the oil? Each one has a whole different story. Napweed. Familiar with napweed? Okay, so napweed uh, uh, exudes niacin out of its roots, and and so then that poisons the other plants around it. That's how it gets a foothold everywhere. However, you know it's fairly easy to be. You know, any kind of water pretty much washes it away. You know, and then plus, have you ever seen nap? I mean, when you look out on the face of Mount Sentinel or you look in a big open field, you see tons of napweed. But do you see tons of napweed growing in a forest? You might see a couple of plants, but you don't see, like, 
so much like you see in an open area. Well, these open areas are almost always some kind of monoculture going on. Like, oh, we only want to grow grass here, you know, and low-growing grass. And an weed comes in, it kicks ass, especially if you don't water. But if you water a little bit, which generally permaculturists don't water anything, but if you were to water a little bit, it generally rinses away the niacin, giving other things a fighting chance against an athlete. But part of the system is, is like, you know, <clears throat> if you've got a full permaculture system, what do you care if you have a little bit of napweed? It's going to be hardly any. And then napweed is like some of the best bee food around. I mean, it makes awesome honey. Just fantastic honey. Okay. All right. Yes, sir. You mentioned honey. I'm a beekeeper. And um, we have, and we love napweed obviously, we have tons of yards that are in the middle of napweed fields, right? But we um, weed eat around the bees um, two to three times a year, depending on how high they grow. Um, and in the middle of a napweed field, inside the bee yard, will be all grass, just because we've mowed. Because, you know... Right. It, it can't survive, and so I think the biggest thing with napweed is, um, you know, our lands aren't being grazed, they're not being burned, and right. other and disturbances allow them to take over. There, I mean, yes, yes, and yes. So um, uh, a lot of times when we see napweed totally taking over, that's land that no one's doing anything with. It's totally idle. Um, and then, of course, we see napweed in some lands where it's being mowed or grazed, and but it's like it's not as bad, but it's there. Yeah. And um, and mowing, especially if you mow at just the right time, really gives uh, napweed a, a kick in the nuts. So um, I should get you some pictures of the beer. Let's talk about bees. <laughs> so, uh, how many people here have seen my video on colony collapse disorder? You've seen it. Yeah. Oh, and and you got to say it's awesome. Um. Wait. <laughs> what? You you hesitated. No, no, it was it was good, but the lady you had in there, and I haven't met her, and I haven't listened to her extensively, but she's she's kind of one of those. Um, like ethereal beekeepers that have just a few hives and they're not really com commercial beekeepers. They don't run thousands of hives and they're not exposed to all the same things that uh, traditional beekeepers are. So I had a few little issues with that and I have some of my own theories that, you know, probably go along with what she's saying, but she's, she's not um, too articulate about a lot of the issues with commercial beekeepers. So, all right, so when we talk about commercial beekeeping, I mean, like, we, we could open up the whole thing of, like, um, you know, should we, I mean, if you have a design where it's like you're going to have a 1,000 hives versus designing a system where you have 20 hives, then, um, I mean, you know, for, for a lot of the stuff for a permaculture, the way that the permaculture approaches work is typically of, like, we're going to control a much smaller amount of food. We're going to control 100 acres. We're not going to control 10,000 acres. Um, and then instead of having Cargill to go to for food, um, uh, we're going to go to 10,000 different farmers. Yeah. So um, 
and, and then instead of having uh, 10,000 contiguous acres of almonds, you know, there'll be a polyculture. There'll be uh, a food forest, and there'll be it'll be spread out, and there'll be almonds all over the place. And instead of being 10 or 15 almond growers that are you know providing 99% of all the almonds in the world, we'll have something more like 10,000 almond growers. Yeah. That that kind of thing. Yeah. And rather than moving bees around on big trucks, that you know people will have their 20 hives of bees and it'll be part of their 100 acres, and they're growing almonds, and they're growing all kinds of other things. Yeah. So that way they don't need to move the bees. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole different issue. It's a whole different approach. Yeah. It's, it's you know, the inverted approach. Now, um, how many hives do you manage? Well, my father um, has about 1,300, and, and his partners, they're not business partners, but they work together, he has the same amount, so I work with both of them, we manage about 25 to 2,600 hives in the dual area, and so, you know, it's a, not a very large commercial operation, but it's a commercial commercial operation, Right. and, um, you know, we've, we've had losses to CCD, um, but it's usually on the range from 30 to 35%. We haven't seen like 70 or complete losses. And it's interesting to me that a lot of the smaller beekeepers that have like 20 to 30, they will lose all of all of their bees. And they you know there's probably reasons for that. I have my own, you know, theories that that you know sometimes just don't want to agree to, you know, especially. Um, people who are studying the pathogens and such. My my theory is that it's a combination of the corn syrup, the pesticides that are in the corn syrup and that they're exposed to um, either in California and almonds or here along the roadside. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's the whole nutritional thing and genetics. And Do you agree that all the bees around the world are dying? Well, I mean, there's well, there's no really disputing that people are losing, you know, a majority. It's been about forty percent every year for the last six years or so. Yeah, and it's that's undisputed. I mean, that's that's been measured eight different ways. Is that African bees out of No, no, we're not really worried about those. Let's let's. That's a whole different issue. New Orleans, and they're all down over there now. Oh, yeah. They're, 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 I was just wondering how far they got well, all over in the region. You know, the, every different species or subspecies, I don't know what the line is, um, is evolved to their own climate. So you're not going to find African bees up here because they generally won't survive the winter. And they're just not evolved to it. And then the other thing is those Africanized bees are a small species of earth of bees that were from a certain area in Africa. So there's many different kinds of African bees that probably would do okay or better in further north climates, but there's no importation of African bees anymore. Do you see a series of two 
Um, Sounds like your theory is pretty well aligned with the video. I well, yeah. I, I'll have to watch it again. I I watched it. I <coughs> over that lady with, with the lady that you didn't like. She was <laughs> no, saying the stuff I that you agree her, with. You I just saw her in the the Queen of the Sun. Queen of the Sun. She was in there too. Yeah. She's like a movie star or something now. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure like if we sat down and talked, but you know she was talking about her little bee clubs and how they're not experiencing it and. I don't know where she's located. Or Battleground, Washington. Okay, yeah. So, um, and and so she's very connected. That's how that's how she ends up in all this stuff. Yeah, she's yeah. super connected. Sure. She's she's really paying attention. She's she's got a lot of stuff going on. I've been to her farm like three times now. Yeah. She's got a lot of awesome stuff going well, on. She said some good things. Um, you know, it's about what beekeepers are doing to their bees and what we're doing to the landscape around us. We're inundating the earth um, with these chemicals that are persistent. Um, uh, farmers are spraying them on their crops and they're produced in the crops and the nectar and the pollen. And then, and then the corn, beekeepers are feeding high fructose corn syrup and these pesticides are obviously in the corn. And that's probably attributing to the, their susceptibility to, um, susceptibility to these new viruses, these new breeds of nocema, which is a bacteria that lives in the gut. Um, See, now, when I went around and I interviewed these different guys, and I, I mean, there's a lot of footage that just never made it into my video. Yeah. Then, I mean, there was a strong correlation, because I always asked them, you know, hey, how's it going with this colony collapse disorder? And then they would talk about that. And then I'd say, hey, what are you doing to control those mice, huh? And it's like, there was, and it's like if they were, like, going full-board chemical on the mites, they're experiencing 40 to 50% loss to colony collapse disorder. The ones that had cut way back, they were, being, they were going back down to like 15 to 20% colony collapse disorder. And then the ones where they had gone down to utter zero, they were not using anything to control the mites. The bees are on their own. They were not losing any to colony collapse disorder. Were they? The ones that were using essential oils were experiencing about 10% loss to colony collapse disorder. Mm -hmm. But the ones that were using no essential oils, no nothing of any kind, were having 0% loss. Yeah. I could not find anybody that was doing nothing. I mean, of course, then it's possible you could be losing your whole hive to mites. Yes. But they were reporting that they didn't lose any to mites. It they were. They had mites in there, but then they were like able to deal with them. Well, were they using mechanical mite controls, or were they just letting the susceptible ones die off? That's the other side of the issue. Right. You could breeding. Yeah. Breeding for. Um, the only thing that I heard of any of them doing was um, allowing them to build comb to whatever size they want. And, and so then they would, they would not put in any comb templates. Okay. That's the only thing they did to control mites that I heard of these guys using. They were, they were basically saying they'd only give them like a top bar or they would um, give them a frame and a couple of wires, but they would not put in a template. I could see where that would work if they did that every year. Because, because what they were saying is, is that by doing that, then the bees made a smaller cell. Really? Now, granted, there's that guy there who's like the bee whisperer. <laughs> yeah. See, now my reaction was the same as yours. <laughs> and one of the things is, is I got video of him taking a beehive and he's slamming it against, like, the ground or another hive or something. It's like, 
He's like, look at this. Look at how I'm riling them up. I'm just, but, and then they're not stinging me. I'm sitting right here. It's because, and his point was to tell all these little kids that they are not like stinging little monsters, little stinging monsters, I think is what he said. And I'm just kind of thinking, this dude has no respect for bees. Because <laughs> um, that's the other thing, is you go visit the gal that you don't like, who I like very much, I, Jacqueline Freeman. I, I, don't. I have never seen such reverence for bees. Never. I mean, I've visited a lot of, uh, of uh, um, beaks. And the, 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 the beaks are like, yeah, you know, let's pull this up, we'll inspect the hive, and we're going to put it back. Two or three bees always get smashed when you put the super back on. Yeah. We need to start clearing up chairs. We need to start getting the chairs put away. Um, but this woman, she um, would not kill a single bee. She would not allow a single bee to get harmed. She would rather it took an hour to put that back. How many uh, I think she had like five at the time, but I mean like she has more and less as time goes. But she teaches a ton of classes and she goes around and helps all kinds of other beekeepers in the area. Yeah. She's, she's, but, but see her thing is, is nobody should have more than a few. She has a whole different approach to well, it, far less yeah. commercial. Well, where are they going to get the bees from? She captures swarms. She's, she gets, she's on some sort of call list, and they get called out like every week or two to capture swarms. Well, that's a good point. But if they're swarming, they're healthy. Well, that's a natural guess. All right, podcast people, you're done. I'm shutting you down. That's the end of today's podcast. Well, that's it. Part three of three. Uh, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about farm income, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.